Come on, give it up for this red jacket. Color. In living color. <laughs> I love you back. Excited to hear you talk for the next seven hours. <laughs> They're not. It's good to see you. It is good to be seen and not viewed. <laughs> I get it. How many old preacher jokes do you have like that? Like, give me another one. Oh, God, don't do that. Don't do that. You have to listen. They, they, they come organically. The, the first time you hung out with me, you scared me so bad. So, like, he was nice enough to spend a day with me talking about preaching. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of telling me about preaching, he starts preaching about blind Bartimaeus. Mm -hmm. And he starts acting out every character in the story of blind Bartimaeus. And blind Bartimaeus hollers in the story. Mm -hmm. And it's just me and him in the room. And he hollers full throat bishop voice across the desk at me. And I spilled my uh, gum. <laughs> But I've, I've told people about that. I've told them you can preach on anything. Well, it's not really that. What we were talking about is, is spinning the text. Yep. <clears throat> because on one hand, I'm a preacher, and on the, on the other hand, I'm a film producer. And one of the things you have to decide whenever you do a film, you have a story. Somebody brings you a story, and you decide to write a script for it. You have to decide which character is going to be the narrative, who's going to be talking. And so if you take that principle and you apply it to the Bible, is it going to be told through the eyes of blind Bartimaeus, or is it going to be told through the eyes of Jesus, or is it going to be told through the eyes of the disciples? Because every POV point of view leads you into a different realm of truth. You see, it depends on whose perspective. It's like a husband and a wife live in the same house, have the same address, eat the same food, but they're having two different experiences. And so the point of view determines uh, the, the relativity of the truth, the power of the truth, the significance of the truth is all brought about by who's talking. You take the prodigal son. It's one thing to talk about it from the son's perspective. It's another thing to talk about it from the elder brother's perspective. It's yet a third thing to talk about it from the father's perspective. Okay, Each perspective opens up a new ventricle of truth and feeling and perspective. And when you look at it in its totality, then you see the, sums, the substratum of truth itself. All right, we've been going five minutes. You've already said ventricle and substratum, so let's <laughs> slow it down. Um, there's a reason I played my shot from Hamilton when you came out, and you know why. <laughs> you tell him. Can I tell him? Yeah. Bishop Jakes and I got to watch Hamilton together a while back. Yeah. So what I thought would be fun, oh, just a God. game, and then we're going to talk about the book. It's going to be very spiritual. He, 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 he warned me to brace myself for something he was going to surprise me with, so yeah. pray, pray for and me. It's, 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 better, it's better than a dance-off, but okay. what I would like to do is play a game where I give you a song title from Hamilton the Musical, oh, God. and you preach us a one-minute sermon on that song title with a text. And uh, how many of you would love to experience this? I thought you would. I thought you would. How y'all doing over there? This is going to be the best night of your life. <laughs> Starts right now. Starts with this. Okay. So the song that we came out to, that you came out to, mm -hmm. My Shot. What's the text and my, what's the sermon? My Shot. Uh, <clears throat> my Shot is... Uh, the young prophet who Elijah commissions to uh, shoot the arrow. And depending upon how far he shoots it, it determines, well, what he could have had. 
and said, if you, if you would have struck the ground more times, you could have gone further. <laughs> the, the power of the text exists in the reality that God does not make the shot for us, but he gives us all of the ingredients that are necessary to be successful. And so when it's my time to make my shot, <laughs> you see, I can't wait on God to make the shot, but I have to have the will and the tenacity and the vision and the drive to pull all the way back far enough to take my shot. Touch your neighbor and say, it's my shot. If I shouted for you when you had your shot, shout for me when I had my shot. If I was glad for you when you had your shot. Next one. The room where it happens. Oh, gosh. Uh, Thomas coming into the upper room after Christ is risen from the dead. And he comes into the room having missed the initial uh, inaugural moment that Christ reappears to his disciples. Now he comes to the room. The power of being in the room will determine the destiny of his ministry and his life. He comes to a room that he enters into the door, but Christ comes through the door, spirit enough to come through the door, and man enough to eat fish inside the door. He boggles the mind of the disciples, but that was not what convinced Thomas to believe, what caused Thomas to believe, because otherwise Thomas would have thought he was a ghost. He says, reach hither your hand and feel the nail prints in my hands and touch my side and be not faithless, but believe. And all of a sudden, the doubting Thomas is converted only because he is in the room. Now, touch your neighbor, say, I'm in the room. Even if I'm in overflow. <laughs> in the room. One more. One more. You want to say more about that one? No, I can. Because I was like, I was on a basic track. I was thinking, like, my shot is David and Goliath, but okay, yours is better. Look, what else is new? No, no. Or, or, or we could go in the room where they are mourning over the, the corpse of a 12 year old dead girl, and, and all of a sudden Jesus puts them all out of the room until nobody's in the room but her and Jesus and they're alone, he raises her up from the dead because he has gone into the room with her. You know? And can you imagine what it would be like to be outside the door and certainly hear the sound of ruffling feet and think to yourself, who is that moving? I hear the, the scampering of little feet and I know it could not be this girl because I know she is dead. I touched her and she was cold. I touched her and she was stiff. I touched her and I knew for sure that she was absolutely dead, but I hear the sound of the scampering of a 12-year-old's feet because she was in the room with the right person. She got back up again. So, my conclusion is, if everybody forsakes me and everybody leaves my room, as long as Jesus is in the room, I can still get back up again. <laughs> so to all of you, to all of you out there who are weeping over who walked out the room, who left you, who forsook you, who did not stand there with you, as long as you've got Jesus in the room, you can still get back up 
wanna be in the room. <laughs> Don't think of nothing else, I'm running out. (laughs) One more? Yeah, do it. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? Early in the morning, the breaking of day, the women wrap themselves up to go down to the tomb. Loyal to a Jesus who has become extremely controversial, has been executed, not crucified, executed on the cross. And yet they are still going down, even though he did not do what they thought he was going to do. These women rise up early and go down to the tomb. Only when they arrived at the tomb with the dew on the ground and the mist in the air, and the fragrance of death still lurking in the inner chamber. The stone has been rolled away. And sitting on top of the stone on each side is an angel saying, he is not here. He has risen from the dead. And the question then becomes, since he is not here, who tells the story? This woman comes running back. It is totally inappropriate in a misogynic age that a woman would be the first one to carry the message. But there are some times and some seasons that you have to break the protocol of the day because Jesus was looking for somebody who was bold enough to walk into a room full of men and tell them, I know for myself, he is risen from the dead. I am alive to tell his story. Good night, everybody. (laughs) I thought that would be amazing. It was a hundred times better than I ever imagined. You always amaze me. It was scary for me. (laughs) Yeah, so I want to ask you that. I want to get into the I want to get into the content of the book, Crushing. God turns pressure into power. And I was thinking how last time you were here, you wrote Soar. S O A R. It's yeah. like eagles on the cover and plane. Yeah. And now we're on crushing. Yeah. So and what they, happened? They say, <laughs> one, one is not diabolically opposed to the other. For the eagle, soar is about flying, but for the eaglet, soar is about falling. If the eagle stirs her nest and the eaglets are pushed out of the comfort of their nest, is that not crushing? If their food supply is now cut off and they are pushed out by their own mother to fall off the side of a cliff, is that not crushing? Why would mama do that to me? Why would mama not feed me? And in the process of the eaglet falling, flapping its wings in hysteria. It is the thing that crushed the eaglet that causes it to soar. Wow. And, and, and what, what the substratum of, you told me not to use the word, <laughs> what epitomizes the, the, the whole value of crushing is 
to explain to people not to be confused when the crushing precedes a soaring. Because a lot of times, if we only tell you about soaring and we don't tell you about crushing, when something crushing happens in your life, it looks like what we preached is not true. Whereas crushing is the process and soaring is the promise. You cannot have promise without process. And we live in a time where people preach more about the promises and less about the process. So what happens is when you come to church and you hear about the promise and you go home and you find yourself in the process, your life is a contradiction to your faith. But you are so loyal to Jesus that you would never admit that you are not seeing the manifestation of what your pastor is talking about in your life. And it looks like that you must be doing something wrong because they are talking about the blessings and the healing and the soaring and and the power of God and the strength of God and how all things are yours and all promises are yea and amen and you're the head and not the tail and above and not beneath. And then all of a sudden in the midst of them saying all of those things, you are going home and dealing with marital issues, children who won't obey or comply, a sister who doesn't like you, a father who always preferred the other sister or daughter, and you're saying, how is my life in such shambles? Never realizing that those that God is going to anoint the most, he always crushes the most severely. When when we were talking about the arrows a moment ago, and we were talking about striking the ground, and we were talking about the bow and and arrow, uh, you must realize the further the arrow is going to be shot, the more it must be pulled back. And I, I wrote crushing in part because I have never met anybody who did exceptional things in their life who had not at some point endured exceptional crushing. It is the force to which you have been pulled back that determines the height that you will fly. Yeah. You see? Yeah. And I I wonder about that because I've seen you at the height of success, and yet you've shared with me about your own crushing. And Mm -hmm. some of that was external. Mm -hmm. Some of it was internal. Mm -hmm. Some of the things that you've shared with me privately gave me hope to know that God is using a lot of the things that I think disqualify me, and that that will be the actual place of power. Mm -hmm. But what I wanted to ask you on a deeper level is, do you think that there is a certain process by which we accept that crushing that either turns it into something powerful or something destructive in our life? Is the the pressure of the, the things that we go through in itself a growth mechanism, or is there a response that's required from us to, to make it turn into something? You know, that's a great question. And, you know, it, a couple of things come to my mind. When I married my wife, I was pastoring. I've been pastoring for two years. I pastored a very small church in, in, a, in a rural area of West Virginia called Montgomery, West Virginia, though I lived in Charleston. I was pastoring and working a full time job. Uh, I had a brand new car, I had my own place. I mean, I wasn't wealthy or anything like that, but I had a car and a good job, and, and I had my own place, and I was good enough to, to say I do. And not long after I said I do, 
the whole country shifted and the, the Union Carbide shut down the part that I worked for and many other uh, industries began to leave the Rust Belt states and I was unemployed and ran out of unemployment. And eventually they repossessed my car. And eventually I could not feed my children. And eventually it got so low that the deacons loaned me a car. But the car was so raggedy that they hid it in the back of the church. <laughs> no, I'm serious. It was a 1967 Valiant with the floorboard rusted out of the bottom of it. And I had to put carpet over the bottom of the floor so my kids' feet didn't go through. And they didn't want anybody to know that the pastor had that kind of car. So when we had guests, they would hide my car in the back because that was the stage of life I was in. It got so bad that the car broke down on the side of the road and I had to thumb to get to church and climb across the coal cars on the railroad tracks to go into the church to preach faith. I never stopped preaching. I never let up on preaching the power of God and the strength of God. Even though it became so bad that we at one point had to go gather apples to feed the kids because we had nothing at all to eat. God knew that later in my life, he was going to bless me extraordinarily. And some people would later question, are you serving God for stuff? So he allowed me to be crushed early so that no matter what they said, I would know. You understand what I'm saying? Because they, they were going to come in at the end of the movie and make assumptions. But I lived through the first of the movie to validate the fact that it was not for the things he gave me that I do what I do. It, it was because of the love and the passion and the anointing. And so, yes, it, it makes you, and, and sometimes it also creates a narrative for you that completes your ability to reach both high and low. I can reach the guy in the homeless shelter, and I can reach the guy in the penthouse suite because I have learned how to abase and abound. I've suffered lack, and I've had plenty. And I have learned whatever state I'm in, therewith to be content. Some things God takes you through are not for you, but it's so you can reach somebody else. Sometimes, sometimes he crushes you because he's going to bless you so much he does not want you to get arrogant like your predecessors. And so he humbles you. Anytime he's going to exalt you, he humbles you. you. You take the two fish and the five loaves of bread when they brought it to Jesus. They brought it to Jesus to multiply it. And the first thing he did was crush it. He took it and he blessed it and he broke it. As he broke it, he started crushing the fish and the bread. And the more he crushed it, the more it multiplied. The more he crushed it, the more it multiplied. The more he crushed it, the more it multiplied. And all of a sudden you find yourself in a state of multiplication. And somebody comes in and says, look at all of that fish. But you know that when you first came into his hands, you were not enough. It was his crushing that made you more than enough. 
So, so, so sometimes it's intrinsic and sometimes it is so that you are relevant for other people. I want to give you one more quick example. Look at Aaron. You can give me one more not quick example. Look at, the, Moses goes up on the mountaintop to get the Ten Commandments from God. Simultaneously, he also has the experience of getting the plans for the tabernacle. And there he is, God designs the garments. Now, you know, sometimes we'll have a name brand, something, but to be designed by God. Aaron's robes were designed by the almighty God. And God says, of all the people that have escaped the trauma of Egypt, there is one guy that I will allow to come into the holies of holies and not die. And that guy is going to be able to access my presence and represent the children of Israel. The guy he is talking about has been left in charge at the bottom of the mountain. And so while God is designing what will be blue and what will be purple and what will be crimson, this guy has got the whole camp stripped naked, dancing naked around a golden calf. In the process, when Moses comes down off the mountain, he is so shocked, he drops the Ten Commandments because the one that God has promoted has fallen into an abyss so low that it seems like there's a disconnect between what happened up here and what happened down there. But it is really the wisdom of God because had God allowed anybody else to be the high priest, when people got ready to come and share their sins, he might be arrogant. But because God had so crushed him, he was humble enough that no matter what your sin was, he would remember his own. And that humility would make him able to be able to connect with you and be kin both to the problem and kin to the answer. This is a shadow of Christ who became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. He is in all points without sin, but tempted like as we are so that we can come to him and he can be touched by the feeling of our infirmity. He became it so he could deliver us from it. Aaron is the shadow, Christ is the reality. I always figure that's what makes you stop and take time and care about people is the years that you were preaching with barbecue sauce on your tie because you were making the chicken for the fundraiser in the back of the church before you preached. See, they don't know what you're talking about. Let me tell you what I did. I think I explained it pretty well. No, 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 no. You didn't do it. You didn't do good at all. Just sit back, let, let the old man show you how to do it. My spiritual father's coming, and he's coming with five busloads of people to, to celebrate my second or third or fourth anniversary, and I've got maybe 30 members at best, counting pregnant people and dead folks. <laughs> and, uh, and so we have to have all of this food for all these busloads of people he brought. So my wife and I had to cook it, but we didn't want to look like we cooked it. We wanted to look like we had enough members to cook it. So I had my bow tie on because it's my anniversary and I had my suit on and they said, you know, now let's receive the pastor and his wife. And I marched down the aisle, you know, like I had all of these members, which most of them were really his. And he, he leaned over and whispered to me and said, you left a little barbecue sauce on your fingernails. <laughs> 
I love that. You know, you know what? I, I love it too because you know what? I have always been tenacious. I have always been relentless. I never allowed my circumstances to destroy my intensity and my drive and my feeling that God was going to do something in my life. Yeah, so having come from a season of obscurity, and this is not six months of obscurity, this is <laughs> no. how many years? Oh, years. I mean, uh, years. I, I, I was in a church that I preached twice in seven years. My job was to clean out the baptism pool and to shampoo the rugs uh, three times a year. And on a Saturday, I would do that. Uh, I drove my pastor around. Uh, I cleaned up the church. Uh, I worked in the ministry and I hardly ever missed a service, though I was hardly ever called on to speak. Uh, obscurity, though, Pastor, is, is, is a great gift. It's a great gift. There's a reason that God develops an embryo in obscurity. There's a reason that Moses was hidden in the tent three months. There's a reason that Christ dwelt in obscurity till he was 30. Obscurity gives you a chance to have development, uh, to fight your own devils, to overcome your obstacles, to get your priorities in alignment. The problem we have today is that people want a success for which they have not been groomed for. Success that you have not been groomed for is like having birthing a baby prematurely. The chances of survival go down the earlier the baby is exposed. And to be exposed too soon is not a blessing, it's a curse. You, you, you don't want anything before it's time. Nothing before it's time. There's a time and a season for every purpose under heaven. And so you don't want to get married too soon. You don't want to buy a house too soon. You don't, you don't want to be exposed to crowds too soon. And so because he loves you, it's not punishment. It's preparation. Because he loves you, he hides you in obscurity. Anything that's valuable, you, you protect. When I stay in a hotel, there's a safe for you to put your valuables in obscurity. Not because they're invaluable. And there's somebody listening to us right now who feels like they've been overlooked because they're not good enough. That's not right. You have been hidden because you are valuable. When the time is right, when the time is right, when you are strong enough to withstand the elements to which you will be exposed to, you will be revealed. You understand? Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about the contrast because... The pressure of success is a type of crushing as well. Oh, absolutely. And usually it's looked at in a linear way. Mm -hmm. You know, if you'll tend sheep, then you'll kill Goliath. Mm -hmm. And then what? Mm -hmm. And then you'll have greater responsibility, and then you'll have more battles and bigger battles. So I want to ask you this oh, personally. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I want to drive that home. The reward you get for overcoming your last, your last challenge is your next challenge. <laughs> That's basically what I was saying. Now, let me ask you this. I really want to ask you this. In your life, what has been a greater pressure? 
the frustration of obscurity or the pressure of success? I didn't have the frustration of obscurity because I never got into this to be exposed. I, I never wanted to be famous. I wanted to be effective. See, see, I, I think our motives have to be right. So, so when I talk about some of the worst parts of my life, they sound real bad and everything, but at the time it, it, it didn't feel bad be, because I had nothing to compare it to. And, 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 and my job was to glorify God in the situation I was in and, and to continue to lead the flock I was in. You cannot be so driven by ambition that you see obscurity as, as punishment. So I think for me, the hardest part was managing what we call success. Because uh, that creates expectations. Right. And the expectations are as different as there are people. Yeah, right. When you have 30 people, you only have 30 people's <laughs> expectations to manage. The more you are known around the church, your church grows, and then the state, and then the country, and then the world, there are eight, almost eight billion people on the planet. Somebody's not gonna like you. <laughs> and, 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 and before, they wouldn't know you. Right, like somebody is on YouTube right now commenting on our clothes, right? Our oh, everything, everything, everything. He shouldn't have that on. You know, I, I, I was at my son-in-law's church. I had on some jeans. You know, they were the ragged kind of ripped jeans because that's because that's how they dress out there. And I was trying to be cool, like coming here. I stress out coming you here. Amazing. You know, I dress for you. Thank you. put great thought into this outfit. I am geared for suits and ties. I have all kinds of suits and ties. And then I come to you and I panic and I think, oh God, I have to be casual. <laughs> what am I going to wear? And I start acting like a girl and sending pictures to people. Do you think I should wear this? <laughs> what? And, and, and the other thing about being big is this. I preach in so many different worlds. I preach in worlds where they would church you for wearing this. And then I'll go and preach in a place where if I wore a suit and a collar, you would think it was strange. Being global causes you to be relevant in so many rooms where the rules are different. And you have to be flexible enough to be able to function in various types of situations and still be true to who you are. You see? Yeah. The Bible would say it this way, to him whom much is given, much is required. So the more that's given to you, the more that's required of you. That's why you ought not to despise the preparation. Because what, what got you applauded over here will get you killed over here. And you won't even know that, that you have stepped into a different arena. Yeah, right. And you don't understand that this is not that. There's nothing worse than seeing a preacher who walks in a room and he thinks that this is that. So he goes into whatever the thing is that he does and he starts doing whatever he does. Oh, oh Lord. Oh, Lord. Oh, my God, my God. And, and, and somebody's getting happy, but somebody's saying, why is he singing? Why is he singing? So, 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 
your normal is somebody else's weird. And, and, and the more God promotes you, the more ambidextrous you have to be to be able to serve the body of Christ because the body is vast and God forbid that you get an opportunity because I don't just want to serve the body of Christ. I also want to be relevant in affecting the culture because I don't just want to preach where the amens run free. I want to go into the wild, into the jungle and capture and ride and ride a lion's back and pull him by the mane and pull him and say, sit down. You know, snatch him by his hair and say, what's my name? You know, you know, you know, yeah. I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to go. Yeah, I know you're shocked. You'll be okay. Breathe in, breathe out. You brought me. We're going to have fun. We're going to have fun. Most of the preachers today only preach to Christians. At the time I came up, we would pitch a tent in the roughest part of town. I mean, I preached I preach in a tent in the Bronx where people were throwing needles down on the altar. They were coming in and throwing crack cocaine down on the altar. There were thugs. There were people in there with guns and knives, and I was happy. I was happy because I was young and I was wild and I was preaching get away from that gate about the lame man at the gate called beautiful and I was preaching get away from that gate where there wasn't a big amen section like this. Today people always want to go into an environment that is friendly fire but the Bible said go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature, black creatures, white creatures, brown creatures, intellectual creatures, illiterate creatures. When I first got to Dallas, I knew, I knew that my ideology had to change. Uh, when I first got to Dallas, I threw a party for the homeless people, rented out the Civic Center and brought all of these clothes and food and, and stuff. That was how I opened up my church. And so we had all of these homeless people in there. And when I was leaving, this, this man looked at me with tears in his eyes. It's hard for me to tell it. And he said, I love you, Mr. Bishop. And, and, and I, I drove away in the car and I thought, he doesn't even know what a bishop he is. And immediately I knew, either you're going to reach the world or you're gonna honor your traditions. You have to go beyond your traditions in order to be effective. And if, if you're going to do that, that pliability, what psychologists would call AQ, your adaptability quotient, mm -hmm. your ability to adapt to environment, comes from being crushed. It comes from the, the, I was gonna say the women would relate to that, but the women today don't do this, so, so the older women might remember when we, when we needed bread dough. <laughs> the younger women don't know what I'm talking about because they, they get the bread already made at the grocery store. But when you go home, ask your grandmother if I'm right about this, th that if you're gonna make biscuits from scratch, you have to knead the dough. And, and the more you crush it, the more pliable it becomes, and, and ultimately the bread will rise because you pressed it. And if you're gonna be adaptable enough 
to fit into the future God has designed for you, then it is, it is the crushings that prepares you not to be more loyal to your traditions than you are your calling. Not to look down your nose at somebody who is into what you just left. Because church people get amnesia. Okay, church people get amnesia quick. They turn up their nose. Oh my God, the smell of smoke. Oh my God, it's it's, 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 a And it was just three years ago. You were sucking on one like it was a straw, you know, you know. And now, 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 oh, I just, oh, they used, they said a profane word. Come on, Henry, let's leave. No, don't leave. Let's stay. Let's stay. Jesus, what made Jesus so radical? He, the religious people hated Jesus. What made him so radical is that Jesus went to the wine bibbers and he went in the street and he touched people who were hurting and they loved him. They loved him. A Jesus that was so relevant that he looked no different than the people around him. He looked so ordinary to his environment that the Roman soldiers had to hire somebody to point him out. So Jesus wasn't into standing out, he was into fitting in. Okay, because in order for him to redeem us according to the law, you had to be a kinsman redeemer. Okay, so in order to be a kinsman redeemer, he has to be kin to the thing he wants to redeem. And what makes a minister effective and not condescending is when you're reaching for that soul. This this is the truth. When you're reaching for that soul, the most effective ministers are the ones who see a little bit of themselves in the people coming down the aisle. Yeah, because if you don't, if you're not kin to them, you won't care about them, and you won't labor with them, and you won't work with them, and you, you'll just walk out and wave and go about your business. But when you're kin to them, you are moved with compassion because you know that could have been you, that used to be be you, and sometimes it's still you. Because you don't live in victory every day. See, but, but the pressure, the pressure of fitting into a religious environment can tempt you to hypocrisy. Be, 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 because we become more concerned about being accepted by the people we worship with than we are about being used by God. So going into environments that intimidate you, excites you. Oh, yeah. You like it. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're a glutton for yeah. punishment. Yeah, yes. What yeah. intimidates you? Oh. Uh, any, anything that's foreign. Any, it, a lot of times I'm speaking in environments that are not faith-based at all. Uh, sometimes uh, I have to be able to deliver truth in a veil. Sometimes I have to put it in a, in a film subtly uh, to make it palatable enough that they don't turn, but potent enough that it captures something on the inside. And so that can be intimidating. Um, I like to be in a room full of smart people. I like to hear people preach who make me feel stupid. 
It's such a turn on. Like, like, yeah, yeah, it, it, it really is, it is. It is, I, I love it the best when the guy preaches so good that I feel like just throwing my Bible up in the air and said, I quit. Because- You just described me every Monday listening to you. <laughs> Get out of here. And I want to ask you about, this is going to sound so silly how I say it, but I wrote down PMS. Mm-hmm. And it's I, early to be going there, but I, I, I put it from the perspective of you know a lot of times on Saturday I'm texting you frantically, like hey, I've got people showing up and they need to hear from God and I don't know if I have yet you know I hope so and you're kind to me and then there's coming down after preaching a message but it's so much more than preachers in here. I thought it would be helpful to talk about not just pre-message syndrome, post-message syndrome from a preaching standpoint, but I want you to describe yeah, yeah, your, your pressure management system. Because, all right, I love the book. It's, it's, it's about how fruitfulness is not the end, mm-hmm. that the gardener, the vine dresser, crushes the grapes to make wine. Mm-hmm. That process of pressure, if it's not managed correctly, it can paralyze you. It can actually make you, it can shut you down. And you've transcended so many limitations and broken barriers and stood up with your hands shaking and done things. Oh, yes. And I want to know how you do it because, like, I need to know, parents need to know, business owners need to know. Uh, how do you manage the pressure without the pressure beginning to overwhelm you and consume you? If the pressure overwhelmed me and consumed me, then the pressure would have aborted my destiny. And I refuse to allow how I feel to abort what I'm called to. You, you touched on so many things that are so important. First of all, I don't want to leave them with the feeling of you being uncertain of, of your message. He's, he's, he's never uncertain of his message. He's uncertain of himself. And the reason he's uncertain of himself is because everybody in this room can see everybody in this room, but they can never see themselves. And so your, your pastor can see everything, but he can't see himself. So when you can't, that's why you have a mirror, because you can't see yourself. I can see everybody. I see all of you, all the way up in the back. Hi. But, <laughs> yeah. How you doing? How you doing? I see you. Got that yellow shirt on your arms folded. I see you up there. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm talking about you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I saw you. Yeah. Yeah, chocolate man in yellow shirt. I got you. Uh, the problem in life when, when you are truly gifted, you can't see it. When you are truly gifted, when you are truly gifted, it is your normal. And so the frustration is you're trying to manifest your gift and you are manifesting your gift, but you don't know that that is your gift because your gift is your normal. People who can sing aren't trying to sing. They just can. 
People who can write aren't trying to write, they just can't. And so when they write things, they think, oh my God, that's not good. Oh my God, it's not good. Oh my God, it's not good. Because you can't see yourself. So sometimes the more gifted you are, the more vulnerable you are, and the more affirmation you need from your inner circle. Because I I can walk off a straight stage and feel like strangling myself with a belt. Because- That was very graphic. (laughs) Good. Good. That, that's part of that's my ministry is to give you pictures. Uh, so, so the reason I think about strangling myself with the belt is because you should you should hear the guy that's preaching in me. <laughs> and and there I am trying to give you what he's giving me. I'm never preaching against the guy who preached before me or the guy who preached after me. I'm preaching against the guy who preached inside of me. Okay, so, so the bar is so high that a lot of times I walk on the stage and I think, you know, why don't you get somebody else? I, I blew it, I, did, I didn't get it across. I'm not sure that they got it the way you got it to me. You got it to me so bad I couldn't sleep that night. And, and, and I'm not sure I can get it out. So really gifted people are sensitive and they're vulnerable and you have to learn how to function within that sensitive, vulnerable space. And I'm gonna give you a couple of things that will help you to do it. Insulate yourself with a few inner circle people who love you enough that you can be vulnerable in front of. And yet are honest enough my, my daughter, let me tell my, my, my story. My, my daughter, Sarah, wrote this paper. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, she wrote this paper one time, and I was, she sent it to me, and I was... Uh, and there I was, was a day where what just happened was something so far away, too. You talk about it in oh, the book. Oh, I talk about it in the book. I mean, she was the least likely child. <laughs> Lord have mercy. If you would have asked me, you know, which one, I would have never. Anyway, I talk about it in the book. You got to read the book. She wrote a paper and she sent it to me. And the thing about me is, my wife says I'm brutally honest. <laughs> I, I say I'm just honest. She, she has to adverse to it. But I'm, she says I'm brutally honest. I will tell you the truth. She wrote this paper, my daughter wrote this paper, she sent it to me and I read it. And I remember I was in LA at the time that I read it. And I was busy, I probably would have been more tactful had I not been so busy, but I was busy. And I read through it and I said, sir, I said, I don't even know what you're talking about. I said, I know you can write better than this. You need to go back and, and write this over again. And she said, okay. She said, that I'll give it another spin. I realize now in retrospect that I probably should have softened it a bit. <laughs> Later on, she wrote her first book. And, and I sat down to read the book. And I'll be honest, I sat down to read the book because she's my daughter and she wrote it and I was going to read it. And uh, it's the way they used to cook. And I, some stuff they cooked, their mother would eat. I would eat anything they cooked. <laughs> just so they have confidence in themselves. So I said, I'm going to read this book. And I started reading it. And I called her and I said, Sarah, I sat down to read the book because she wrote it and I couldn't put it down. I said, I read from the first page to the last page and I didn't stop. Because the rhythm of your writing, the eloquence of your speech, the visual images that are created 
through, through the opulence of your vocabulary was so overwhelming that I was mesmerized. And I left her that message and she called me back. She said, Daddy. She said, Daddy, she said, I, I want to keep this voice message forever. She said, I want to keep it the rest of my life. And I said, Sarah, I said, it was just what I thought. She said, I know. She said, that's what made it real. She said, I could trust your compliments because of your criticism. You, you need somebody who's not just going to say it because they like you or say it because they love you. You want to get the absolute truth from them. An inner circle of people who will tell you like a T.I. is so that you can trust them that when they say it's good because the reason you have to trust them, it's like a blind man with a seeing eye dog. You got to trust the dog because the dog can see. You can't see yourself. And you have to be okay with that or you're never going to get anything done for God. I'm going to go just a little bit deeper. Jesus takes a blind man and, and takes a blind man out of Bethsaida and he lays hands on him and then asks the blind man, what do you say? The healing is all predicated on honesty. The courage to tell Jesus, you touched me and it didn't work in front of your disciples? <laughs> he says, I, I, I see, I'm better, I, but I see men walking in streets. And Jesus touches him again, or I believe spits in his eye, and, and, and tells him to go wash in the pool. And the man has to take the first steps in the dark. The first time I went to the mic to preach, my hands were shaking so bad that when I held the mic, I was nervous when I picked it up, but when I knew that they could see that I was nervous, that made it worse. So it starts, it starts, it was kind of like a, it was kind of like a tambourine or something, you know? So the next time I had them adjust the height of the mic, I didn't quit preaching. I had them adjust the height of the mic and put my hands behind my back so they couldn't see my hands. And I preached the first five or 10 minutes with my hands behind my back until enough anointing came. Because when the anointing comes, the fear goes. And then I took the mic and started preaching. You cannot let your fear hold you back from your destiny. You have to feel the fear and do it anyway. Do it broke, do it scared, do it nervous, do it trembling, do it on your knees, do it with help, do it on crutches, do it in a wheelchair because you don't want to end up in a nursing home sitting on a bedpan wondering what would have happened if you'd only had more courage. You don't want to end up in an old folks home and your dying thought is, I wish I had a because the one thing that you will never get is more time. So you don't have time to allow your fear to incarcerate you when you have the key. Reach around there, unlock the door, and step into your destiny. Mm -hmm. Don't you feel like a lot of stuff gets thrown around at a cliche level like this? Like I was thinking about this reading the book. You have this great section on pruning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And 
feel free to preach on John 15 at any point during this question if you want. But I was thinking how sometimes Christians use language to cover up lifestyles. So, you know, I really wanted to ask you this tonight. Do we sometimes use pruning as an excuse for our bad decisions? In other words, you know, everybody walked away from me. God is pruning me. They walked away from you. Because you're mean. And you're self centered. <laughs> and your breath smells bad. You know, or whatever. And but, 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 but that is pruning too. But some people only learn through those kinds of chastenings. Because anytime you won't hear God's warning, He will chasten you. Mm-hmm. And whom the Lord loveth, He chastens. And you're right, they're not leaving because God is pruning you, but they're leaving because of your behavior, but your behavior is making them leave, which is still a pruning because it comes down to how many will you have to lose for you to change. Okay, I want to go into that, Bishop. So is there a difference between being crushed by the hand of God versus suffering the consequences of your own decisions? I think that sometimes God uses his hand and sometimes he uses yours. Yeah, yeah, sometimes he uses yours, but he, see, see, you cannot get God's people out of God's hand. Whether they are dysfunctional, whether they're emotionally dwarfed, they are still God's people. Whether they make bad decisions or stupid decisions or terrible mistakes, you cannot get them out of God's hand. The souls that are in the Father's hands, no man can pluck them out. Some of them are smart souls. Some of them are proud souls. Some of them are arrogant souls. Some of them are prejudiced souls, but they are in God's hands, and God will keep working with them and working with them and reshaping them and breaking them and making them again and breaking them again until they become what he had in mind. Every branch in me that beareth fruit, every branch in me that's going kind of good, he says the reward is I prune it that it might bring forth more fruit. And ultimately, herein is my Father glorified, verse 8, that you bring forth much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. In between fruit and more fruit is always a knife. When God gets ready to take you up, he always cuts you back. There will, there will be some exodus. There will be some, some loneliness. There will be some crushing place, some weeping, wallowing stage of life because you are his, and he knows exactly where to cut you. In the book I talk about, my mother had a rose bush and I decided to help her out. And I was a little kid and I went out there to do like I had seen her do. I was going to prune the bush. And I almost killed it. The different, I used the same knife and it was the same bush that I'd seen her prune the year before. I used the same knife. But in my hand it was a weapon. And in her hand it was a tool. God knows exactly where to cut you to make you more productive. I was doing the right thing, but I was cutting in the wrong place. Mama knew exactly where to cut that bush in order to make it go from fruit to more fruit 
to much fruit. God knows exactly where to crush you, to bring you to the place that you need to be. I, w- I want to throw this in. What started this journey, I was getting ready to preach at Lakewood, and, uh, and I was sitting outside, and all of a sudden I got a download, and it's hard for me to explain what a download is. I mean, all the technical people know what it is as it relates to technology, but that's kind of what we finally got to in technology. The Holy Spirit was always there because the Holy Spirit has always downloaded. Knowledge from the divine comes in waves. It doesn't come in reason. Right. Behold is a download. <laughs> they missed that. That was so good. Yeah, it was. You got yeah, it? They'll, okay. they'll get it when they watch it back. Preach it Sunday. It'll be all right. The, the word revelation is the Greek word apocalypse. It means to unveil, behold. It is a download. All of a sudden, you know something that you didn't know, and it comes in a fullness, and it comes, and God started giving me this download. Oh, my God. It was, it was not a normal one. It was a big one. It was too big to be a sermon. I was writing all over legal paths, trying to keep up with it, and trying to, trying to, trying to get it all together, because all of a sudden, I began to realize that when Jesus held up the cup in the Last Supper, that there was, and he says the New Testament is in my blood, that, that what was in the cup had synergy with the one who held it. The grape, you see, is one of the few fruits that, that is raised to be crushed. And Christ was born to die. And as he held the cup, he was also, the cup was a reflection of him, except that the cup had already been raised and crushed and resurrected in its eternal form, and Christ was about to be. And he says, take and do this in remembrance of me. I was born to die. You're about to see me be crushed. But understand that as he crushes me like this cup, he is transforming me from grapes to wine. And and, and I wrote this because there are so many people listening at us right now who are being crushed, some in obvious ways. Some in childhood ways. There are people in here who have been raped. There's people in here who have been molested. There's people in here who have been abused verbally, emotionally, mentally, raised without parents, never been loved, never been treated right, and, and they have been crushed. There are people who are being crushed right now in situations that don't work, in circumstances that are overwhelming. Sometimes the pressure is visible and you can see the assailant. But other times it's invisible, it's, it's, a, it's an emotional, it's a mental, it's a turmoil, it's an internal conflict that crushes you and you suffer in invisible ways, like a child that's been whipped and sent to school but they wore clothes to hide the scars. And there you are walking amongst people and nobody can see that you're scarred beneath it all. That's what crushing is and there are people in this room right now who have or will or are enduring crushing moments and they are saying, where is God? And he's under the clothes with you. He's in the pain with you. He's in the situation with you. He's in the turmoil with you. No, nobody else is as brutally, brutally, give me this, brutally, brutally honest 
as God about crushing. It's right up front. The whole emblem of Christianity is a cross. Duh. It's not a crown. He comes right out front and tells you, if any man will be my disciple, pick up his cross and follow me. Come on, let's die. When you went, and I talk about this in the book, I talk about the tabernacle, and the tabernacle stands out in the middle of the wilderness, and the flapping of the goat skins out of the, the badger skins out in the middle of the wilderness, the white flapping of the skins is an indication that God wanted to meet with man, O.L. Moed in Hebrew, the tent of meetings. And you must come in at the door, and the door stands out starkly different from the walls around it with its blue and its crimson and its purple. It's blue for the grace of God. It's crimson for the redemptive power of God. It's purple for the majesty of God. The door stands out because it's a picture of Jesus that says, I am the door. The moment you walk through the door, the very first thing you see is a brazen altar, a dying place. No couches, no chairs, no furniture, no candles, no scents and fragrances, no aromas, no aromatherapy. The very thing you smell is the stench of burning flesh and the dripping of blood into a pan beneath it because God puts the pain up front. He never hides or disguises the fact that the moment you walk into the door, you have to pay something for promotion. You have to go through process to get a promise. You have to go through crushes in order to have a crown. He puts it right, right up front. He doesn't give you the labor. He doesn't, you know how they come along and they give you the little towels on the plane and all that little scented stuff before you do it. He no, 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 no. You will wash later. You will burn first. You will writhe and groan. And, and, the re and let me prove to you, let me prove to you, the apostle proves to us in the New Testament I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. A living sacrifice is something that is put on the altar alive, squirming, tied to something that doesn't work, tied to something that doesn't move, tied to a marriage that doesn't work, tied to a job that doesn't work, tied to a city where you're not respected, tied to a situation where you're squirming. And God uses squirming situations to create crucify the flesh and it's all up front and if you can make it past the first piece of furniture then he'll wash away the stain of the blood off of your hands and take you on into an area that smells better because the first room the first outer court smells like burning flesh but if you make it to the most holy place what 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 calms down the stench of death it's a smell of burning incense. The prayers and praises of the saints drive back the smell of death and what it costs you to be who you are. It costs you to make it. Now, you didn't come through that door to smell death. You came to that door to have an encounter with God, but you have to walk through the whole process and then get to the veil and get past the veil into the holies of holies. You have gone from daylight Daylight, natural light, light that everybody sees, to candlelight, which is revelatory light, the light of God's word, to Shekinah glory, which is divine light. Every step you go from transition to transition, it smells different, it looks different, it feels different. You pass the table of shoe bread, 
where the Bible is specific to say that the table of shoe bread must be made out of fine flour. Now, today we don't get that because if you want fine flour, you go buy it. But in the wilderness, if you want fine flour, you crush it. The finest flour was the only thing that God's bread could be made out of. In, in other words, it had to be crushed and crushed and crushed and crushed and crushed until it was fine enough to be bread. And in our lives, when God gets ready to serve us to the world, there are certain crushings that we go through. There are certain crushings that you're going through right now in your life. And sometimes people don't see it. They don't know that you're being crushed because, because sometimes you're being crushed in your heart in your emotions. I was doing research for my book and I found out that the same part of the brain that processes physical pain processes emotional pain. So my brain doesn't know whether my heart is broken or whether you stabbed me in the leg. The same part of the cerebellum that sends the message that you're in pain is just as intense about a broken heart as it is about a stabbed leg. You understand? So all of a sudden I'm in trauma, but there's no paramedic because I'm not bleeding. I'm not being crushed on the outside where you can put a tourniquet on it and send me to the emergency room. I'm being crushed in my heart. I'm being crushed by failed expectations. I'm being crushed by the fact that I'm older now and I thought I would be further than I am and I am not. God has a whole lot of ways to crush you. I'm being crushed by bankruptcy. I'm being crushed by disappointment. I'm being crushed because I love somebody who won't love me back. I'm being crushed because I have a child who disrespects me. There are all kinds of ways for you to be crushed in places that people don't see and it affects you like you are being stabbed. This trauma of the soul cannot be treated in the hospital. This trauma of the soul, this secret crushing that, 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 that God allows us to go through sometimes in our life are beyond expl- ex- explanation. And yet there's not a person in this room, young or old, black or white, rich or poor, intellectual or illiterate, who escapes it. You cannot live in this world and not need what I'm talking about. You cannot live in this world and not need it. Something in your life is going to be what God uses to crush you. But remember that crushing is not the end. Crushing is not the end. After the grapes have been smashed, I started into this download and I saw the Bible said in Genesis that the the heel, the, the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent would bruise his heel. And I looked at the heels of Jesus and I looked at the bruised heel of Jesus and immediately I was taken in the spirit and I saw women trampling on grapes. <laughs> and when I saw the women trampling on grapes, I saw the stains of the grapes on the heels of their feet. And all of a sudden the Holy Ghost began to connect the blood and the redemptive power of Jesus Christ with the crushing of the grape. And when I looked at Jesus holding the cup, I knew that he was in the cup and and yet he was holding the cup. And immediately I sensed in my spirit, God said, I want you to go tell my people that crushing is a stage, it's not a destination. It's not a destination. It's not a destination. Do not, 
Do not, I, I gotta get this out because this is important. Some people take on a pathology of pain and they make the crushing their address and they live in what should have been a stage. And no matter what you do, you cannot pull them out of it because pain becomes their normal. They will provoke you till you fight them. They will push you away till you reject them because it is the thing that they are most familiar with and they don't understand that they self-sabotage their success. You're not fighting a demon. You're not fighting the devil. You are fighting the fact that you have become so accustomed to pain that it is your place of residency. And I challenge you today to shatter your way out, to break your way out. If you can't get out the door, come out the window. I challenge you today. I challenge you to be happy even if being happy feels funny. I challenge you to have joy if you feel, even if it feels like it's phony. Even if it's not you, if it's not your personality, it's not going to be you, you at first. What do you mean? How do you do that? You, you, because, because when you are used to being miserable, you will provoke everything around you until you are miserable. You are self-sabotaging because you made what should have been a process. You have made it permanent. And now it's you doing it. It's not God doing it. It's you doing it to yourself. And God is steadily trying to rescue you out of the pit, Joseph, but you won't grab the rope because you have become so comfortable in the pit that even when God sends the Midianites to pull you out of the pit, you choose to stay in the pit because you like it down here. I like it down here. Ain't nobody bothering me down here. I just like to be by myself. I want to be alone. I'm just that kind of person. I'm there. No, you're not. It is not good for man to be alone. Your creator said you were not designed to be alone. You have allowed the process to become permanent. So when you break out, Stephen, you feel strange. You feel like an immigrant. You feel like a foreigner. You feel like you're in a strange situation and you want to retreat back to the familiar because even though it's toxic, it's become your normal. And so when you start getting into these other atmospheres, you can't wait to get back to the familiarity of this self-inflicted torture that you put on yourself. And anybody who says you preach nice or you look nice or you did that good, you don't believe them because believing them would free you. You, you, you. <laughs> you, you don't believe them. If you believe them, it would free you. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. That means if I was the devil, all I have to do to keep you bound is keep you from knowing it. You can be beautiful, just don't know it. You can be wonderful, just don't know it. You can be effective, just don't know it. You can be smart, just don't know it. And so the enemy keeps you blind to what you have because you're not used to light. The hardest thing in the world is to go from dark rooms into bright light. And so all of a sudden you say, ooh, that's too much. And so when God does want to emancipate you, you have a tendency to go back into the crushing place because it is your familiar place. But in order for you to find your strength, you have to not only go into the crushing, you must come out of it. You cannot make wine under feet. 
It has to come from the crushing stage to get to the wine stage. It has to survive. I talk about the fermenting stage and all of that in the book. It has to go through these different stages ultimately to become wine. And grapes are at their best when they are wine. Grapes are at their best when they are wine. They are strongest when they are wine. They are more effective when they are wine. They can affect the consumer when they are wine. They infiltrate the blood system when they are wine. Sound like you got some they experience. They don't have to go through digestion when they are wine. <laughs> you understand what I'm talking about? Please. 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 I feel in my spirit God breaking through some deeply personal things in this room. Some things that we don't get on Sunday morning and that we don't talk about and that we don't expose people to. Some pathologies. Some ways in which you process yourself that keeps you underfoot. And I wrote crushing to tell you, yes, you go through it and I go through it and we go through it and we all go through it and I've never met anybody extremely gifted who has not gone through extreme crushing, but none of them stayed there. And, and, and I believe that many of you, your time has come to come out from underfoot, even if the foot is your own. And to, 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 to finish the process of becoming what God had in mind. Jesus says, Father, now glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the foundations of the world. Take me back to what you had in mind. Now, the cross is the transportation. It is not the destination. Wow. First thing my grandmother taught me, I was walking through the house, I was a little boy, I'll never forget it. I had bought a crucifix somewhere and it's still, you know, a crucifix has Christ on the cross. And she said, no baby, she said, don't worry that he's not there anymore. <laughs> he's not there anymore. It's important that the cross be empty to remind you that he did yeah. not get stuck in a stage. Amazing. Touch somebody and say, I'm not there anymore. I'm not there anymore. Some people need you to be there because they have built a system around your pain. And, and they, have, they have created jobs around your dysfunction and they don't want you to get well. Because if you got well, they're afraid that they might not be important to you. And sometimes it's not in their interest for you to recover. I'm going on and on. Let me shut up. I should write a book or something. I should write a book. <laughs> it's like therapy. I'm, I'm settled. I, I, should, I, I should write a book because what I'm talking about is so personal that you should be in your bed reading this. Where I told him, I told him, now this is, I'm old school, so look over me, if this is ignorant, look over here. I still like books. Now we have e-books and stuff like that, and that's nice, and to all of you that are different, get, get the e-books, and then we have audio books, and we have it in Spanish, and all that kind of stuff. I like books. I like books so that I can dog ear the pages and bend it back and abuse the book and write my stuff on top of the book. Because when you hear 
a writer think. That's what reading is, it's to hear your writer think. It, it impregnates you with thought until you start thinking things that are not even in the book. Right. And so I like to write little things, little notes that came to me as a result of something I read in the book. And, and I like to get a, like a little bit of jelly on the book. And, and spill my coffee on it, or just a little bit, just a little bit, so, so that I got highlighted parts of the book and notes in the book, and a little bit of jelly and a little coffee on the book, and then somebody wants to borrow it. No, you can't have my book. There's some DNA in there, my fingerprints on it, but get away from me, that's my book. You, you cannot lead if you do not read. You cannot lead. We, 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 we have raised a, a, a world that has everything so automated that we're afraid of quiet. We want little sound bites of information. So what happens, let me tell you what this generation does. I can post an excerpt from the book on Instagram. It can blow your socks off and you'll repost it, but not read the book. So, there, so you walk away with cliches but no wisdom. So when, when, when the enemy tries you and finds out that there's nothing beneath you but something that you reposted, but right. you really don't understand and you really haven't delved down into, and he starts attacking you on the level that you spoke on, you're not able to stand up against it because you don't have the roots you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. I sense that coming through in the book that you're frustrated with this microwave mentality. Yes. That I am. you're frustrated with this skim the surface spirituality. Yes. yes that I you're am. seeing a failure of it in the church and yes. in our lives. Yes. And and I don't I don't want to leave this world without making sure that what our fathers passed to us is passed to you. Our, our fathers sat around the dinner tables and talked about the Lord and we would wash dishes and do anything just to be in the kitchen or be around where the conversations were being held. And, 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 and the, the, the level of our thought was cultivated because we got to be in the room. Where it happened. Where it happened where it happened. And, and, and so I'm writing and I'm teaching and I'm speaking at this season in my life because I think I, I see a fading away, generals going home. Generals going home, Oral Roberts gone home, Billy Graham gone home, countless people gone home that, that we loved and cherished of all races, colors and hymns, all denominations. Some of our top thinkers are going home. And they're being replaced with our top tweeters. <laughs> and, and so, so we, we, we're now bragging because it's trending. My God, it's trending. You know, it's trending. It's trending. And, 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 and what I want is to get the word in a place that can't be hacked. <laughs> Thy word have I hid in my heart. So that, 
What I'm talking about is so deep, it has to get in you to heal you. It can't just be something cute you put on so you get more followers. I don't want to do that with you. I didn't come up here so you get more followers. I, I want you to get this down in you so that when you have one of those bad nights like I've had, where you're curled up in a corner and you really secretly want to die, that you have enough inside of you to pull you up off of the floor and get you back up on your feet again. I want to put enough word in you so that when you are holding your mother like I held mine and watch her gasp and die and feel her body get cold in your arms and rock her till she's stiff, that you'll have something inside of you that will not break, that will not fade away, that will not fall apart that will make you able to stand even if the person you love walks out on you, that you cry, but you don't die. This, this is not about selling books. It's, it's about leaving footprints. I'm okay if you don't get the book, I'll be fine, I'm good. <laughs> this is not about commercialization. I say I'm good because all my kids are grown. I'm good, I'm good. We can downside, live in the trailer somewhere, we'd make it, we'll be all right. We will make it to old age. We are in old age now, but we're in denial. <laughs> I want to leave footprints behind. My son is in this room right now. I want to say something that outlives me. I want to say something that catches him when I'm dead. I want to say something that becomes fuel for the next 200 years that lives on in your mouth and the mouths of your children. I'm way past needing to be known. I have smelled the fragrance of his presence as unworthy as I am. And I, I have this, this need to tell you that he's more than amazing, that he's greater than religion, and he's better than your dogma and your creed and your doctrines and your theology. That sometimes he's the only thing in an unstable world that keeps you from falling absolutely apart. So, I call it crushing. And I, I want to tell you something, I'm going to be honest with you. The subtitle really isn't mine, it's what, the, it's what the publishers wanted. My title really was Crushing is Not the End. Because the substratum of the book is really about not getting stuck in a stage and deteriorating and rotting and giving up on yourself and your dreams and how to be productive at every stage of your life.
and not to think because you have a setback that this is not God and that you can't win and that you can't be successful because I would not be here. If I believed the first 10 years of my pastorate, I wouldn't be here. I, I pastored the first few years of my church sitting on a piano bench. My foot was the drum. I played for myself while I was preaching. I took all the money from my job and put it into my church. My mama was frying fish and chicken behind the wall because she believed in my dream. And had success been determined by numbers, I would have quit. But the Bible said, after you suffered a while, I'll establish you and make you perfect. When I started preaching all over the country like you're preaching all over the country, I was still pastoring the storefront. And they were making fun of me because I was preaching in all the biggest churches around the country. And I came home to a storefront. It was so small that when people came to visit me, I would stand at the front door and watch them drive past. <laughs> No, I'm not being funny. I'm telling the truth. They would be looking for my church. It was at that point, it was right across the street from Rose City Cafeteria in South Charleston, West Virginia. And they would be driving past. They were looking for one of those big places. They went right past my church like it wasn't even there. When I got on national television, I had one person, one staff person. I had, in our entire ministry, we had $8,000 in the bank. And the first time 1-800-BISHOP-2 rang in, I had all the church mothers answering the phones. <laughs> I had a phone in the pulpit. I had a phone in the sound room. I had a phone in my office. And I had a phone in Beverly's office. And I had all these old ladies that answered the phone. I said, 1-800-BISHOP-2. And, and, and they were writing stuff. And we couldn't even read what the people had said. We couldn't read the prayer request because our hands were shaking. <laughs> And I, I only, I, I didn't own a duplicator. I borrowed a duplicator from Brian Keith Williams and drove to Columbus, Ohio to get it and to start duplicating things. It does not matter where you start. Do you hear me? It does not matter where you start. It matters where you finish. It does not matter how you suffer. It does not matter how they laugh at you and make fun of you. They told jokes about me. They said I'd never have anything. They said I couldn't preach. They said I couldn't pastor. They said, they said, they said, they said, they said, and none of it was true. None of it was true. You have to hold your truth inside of you. You have to know. When all hell is breaking loose, that he that has began a good work in you shall perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. I, I know, I've probably gone over it. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. How many people are being blessed tonight? How many people needed this word from God about trusting tonight? Everybody in here who's been through something crushing, just trust somebody and tell them it crushed me, it crushed me. But I survived. <laughs> I cried, but I survived. It crushed me, but I survived. I went through a test. But I survived. 
Because I figure if you will tell them that it crushed you, I think that if you would tell them and stop acting like you don't relate to this, then we would see survivors and other people would learn that, that, you, that there's something beyond the crushing, that grapes do turn to wine, that crosses turn to crown, the pain turns to power, that scars turn to stars. Somebody needs to know that you and Honey Boo didn't live together happily for 50 years. Sometimes you just came home because that's where your shoes were. Sometimes she faced the east and you faced the west and your hip bones didn't even touch. You were so far apart. I, I can sleep on, you know that little rail on the side of the mattress? I can get my whole big body, the entirety of my 280 plus pounds can lay right on that edge all night long and not fall off the edge. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. We got people that get married, and if everything isn't wonderful in nine months, they're out. They've been in 12 churches. They quit every job they had because they don't recognize your worth and who you are. Shut up. Shut up. Grab a broom. Sweet, mop, do something. This, God put you there to learn something. It's not always about the money. Sometimes it's about the moment. Sometimes it's about somebody you met. Sometimes it's somebody God sent you there to influence. Everything is not about you. We, we, we talk like this, you and I, <laughs> all the time. If all of y'all left, we would still be sitting there talking like this. We talk like this on the phone because you know what? Your pastor has greatness in him. And, and, and you know what greatness needs? Greatness always needs a friend. Greatness always needs somebody to say, I'm scared. Greatness always needs somebody who will not judge you, who criticize you. Greatness always needs a soft place to fall. Because sometimes being great ain't so great. Sometimes being great means being crushed and not being allowed to whimper. Sometimes being great means bearing the fact that you're in a crushing season and helping other people and going home empty yourself. 
Sometimes being great means giving all of your courage to people until they go home in courage and you get in your car discouraged and sit up to two or three o'clock in the morning trying to get yourself to sleep. So before you become jealous of anybody you see on any stage, I don't even have to be preaching hip hop, rap, I don't care what it is, poetry, drama, art, science, math, technology, I don't care what platform it may be. They didn't get there because they were cute. They got there because they were crushed. And all I want to be is, 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 is some soft place for you to say, I'm tired, or I'm mad, or I'm aggravated, or I got a revelation I heard from God, or I feel empty. And the reason I want to give you that is because I know so well what it is to need that. And I know how valuable it is. When you are crushed in secret places, nobody comforts you. When you are Superman, nobody knows you're Clark Kent. And for every heroic mama, grandmama, big mama, daddy, big brother, uncle, single parent in this room. You know what I'm talking about. You know that mama's not always as happy as the kids think she is. You know that it's not always as easy to be daddy as it looks like it is. You know what it is to have to be consistent while you are being crushed. It is to you that I write. It is to you that I breathe. It is you that gave me calling all of these years. I'm called to you. I always have been. I always have been. I probably always will be. Get up. I want to get up. I want to get up. I want to, I want to tell you that I'm, I'm here for you. I ain't much. <laughs> I ain't much. But he called me because of you. When I first started preaching early in my ministry, I wasn't used to big stages and big crowds and all of the heat and all of the headaches and all of the criticism and all of the envy and all of the strife and all the stuff. Let me fix my clothes, Lord. <laughs> fix the old man up if you're gonna be standing behind me. The least, you can, the least you can do is fix me up. And when this old country boy first got exposed to what it, what it costs to be up front, I didn't want it. 
And I had gone to Evangel Temple in, in D.C. to preach, and I had decided I'm gonna preach tonight and I'm gonna quit. The Washington Post had written a blistering, what I thought was a blistering article uh, uh, about me, because that's what they do. They never write blistering articles about preachers that aren't big enough to be known. Because then the controversy sells product. You have to be big enough to be attacked. I should have seen it as a compliment, but I wasn't mature enough to understand that, that levels bring new devils and that promotions bring new problems. And I, I didn't understand that, that to be in the paper at all, even though I was misunderstood in the paper meant that I was significant enough to be evaluated. I hadn't gotten there yet. So I wanted to quit. And I decided this is my last sermon. I preached my head off. And I said, this is it. And I was in after hours fellowship and they kept worrying me about some woman downstairs that wanted to see me. And I said, well, if she's there when I come down, because I was tired, I wasn't going down there. She was. <laughs> that was my way of getting out. I said, if she's there when I come down, I'll talk to her. Well, I finally came downstairs. This woman was standing there. She was tiny and frail and shaking. And she said, I came all the way here to see you. She said, I just got out of the hospital. I checked myself out. She said, I was carrying a dead baby in my womb and the baby was rotting inside of me and I've never been so sick in all of my life. And she said, the only thing that kept me alive was hearing you preach. And she said, if you didn't keep preaching, I would have died. And she said, the Lord spoke to me and told me to get up out of the hospital and go find you. And to tell you, it's not for them that you preach. It's for us. She said, she said, it's for us. It's not for them. It's for us. I, I staggered back like she shot me. I, I got in the car, man, and I cried all the way, all the way home. I couldn't stop crying. Because that woman that I didn't even know reminded me why I am breathing. Now that was early in my ministry and it, right at the point it, it was beginning to explode. Last year, two years ago, I was on a book tour and this woman walked up to me at the sign and she said, you remember that lady that came to see you at Evangel Temple? And when she said it, I started crying. I lost it immediately. She said, I'm that woman. Wow. And I told her, I said, I prayed, I didn't know her name or nothing. I prayed that I would see her again to tell her thank you because when I was being crushed, she reminded me of why I breathe. While, while God was toughening me up enough to stand the weight of something that he called me to do that I didn't even ask for. 
he sent an angel right out the hospital to tell me, don't get stuck in the crushing. That when this is over, you shall come forth as children. And I feel like I'm here for a reason. I don't care whether you get a book or not. I'm, I'm here for a reason. I wrote the book for a reason. I'm standing here for a reason. Because I think that I'm supposed to give to you what was given to me. That if you are in or have been in your crushing place, don't you die here. Don't you let somebody standing on the outside of you say something about you that makes you die. Don't you let somebody who left you or forsook you or divorced you or denied you or betrayed you make you hate your life enough that you stop breathing before you see the fulfillment of the promise of God in your life. And so whether you're in this room or whether you're in one of the campuses or whether you're in an overflow room or whether you're standing outside peeking in the door or whether you're streaming online, I wrote a book that ain't sexy and ain't full about the promises of God and three ways to be blessed and five ways to get a new car and, and two ways to get your house painted while you sit on your couch. I wrote to the people who have been crushed. I want, I want, I want to do something. I'm gonna keep going till he grabbed me. I want you to reach out and touch somebody next to you and not just assume that they're okay. Even if you're married to them. I'm serious because you can be being crushed laying next to somebody who has no idea that you are being crushed. And some of us are so masterful at being crushed that, it, that it's become normal. You might be touching somebody right now who, who has got stuck in a state of crushing and they can't get out. You might be touching somebody who runs away, anybody who looks like they care about them because they're scared of rejection and the only way of coping is to not let you in because if I don't let you in, then I don't have to see you go. You might be touching somebody who was abused as a child, raped by a relative. And they all made up and gussied up and looking good and they don't want you to know that they have nightmares and terrors and flashbacks. You might be touching somebody who's trying to be a father and didn't have one. Trying to be a man and never saw one. You might be touching somebody who's trying to find love and live with a man, but they've never lived with a man before and they don't understand men. And they're married to a man, but they talk to him like he's a woman because they've never had a father and men are a mystery. 
You might be talking to somebody who's trying to raise a child and you gave them everything and they're still angry and disrespectful and you work like a dog so they'd have the best of everything and now when you need them the most they don't understand you and you don't feel appreciated and you don't feel loved and you come to church, sometimes it's your only escape is to get in the house of God and worship yourself till you are drunk because you can't deal with what's going on in your life. Squeeze that person's hand right there because that's who I came to talk to tonight. And we come in all colors and we come in all races and we come in all genders and all ages because the one thing about pain, it ain't never prejudice. It'll get everybody, it'll get anybody, it'll get any gender, any race, any orientation. Pain will come anywhere. So squeeze their hand and let them know that they are not alone. And so here I stand, Lord, with these, your people. These are your grapes. Clusters and clusters and clusters of grapes. That at some point, at some time or another, they have gone through something. Maybe going through something right now. But oh God, I know you're the winemaker. <laughs> Woo! Glory to God. I know you are the winemaker. I know you're not finished with them. I know you're not through with them. I know it ain't over yet. I know it's not over yet. And I pray, God, that you give them, give them a faith injection. In this little bit of time, I tried to impart just a fragment of what you gave me. I pray, Lord, not only would they get the things that I wrote in the book, but I pray, God, that you would say stuff to them that I didn't know to write. That you would talk to them about the specific tool you used in their life to crush them. And go beyond that and show them the triumphant plan that you have to raise them up above where they have ever been before. I pray, God, that Revival would break out. <laughs> not, 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 I'm not so much in the country, not so much even in the church. I'm not praying that revival would break out in elevation. I pray revival would break out in your chest. I pray that revival would break out in your spirit and in your mind and in your being and in your soul. I pray that, that worship service would break out in your car, that you go home worshiping God so strong that you'd have to sit in the parking lot for a while to get yourself together because the glory of the Lord has set all over you and the power of God has overshadowed you. Father, I pray for this young lion pawing behind me. I pray that his teeth be sharp and his back be straight. I pray that his head be held up high. And I pray, Lord, that you'd make his feet as hinds feet, strong enough to climb for years and years and years and years and years to come. And that he would do like David and serve his generation well. I pray that the power of God 
would overshadow every pastor in this room, in the overflow, in other places, watching online, every leader, every feeder, every single mama, every daddy trying to be a dad, every man trying to pull his weight, every young boy trying to figure out who he is and get himself together and wishes he was further than he was right now. I pray that the power of God would find them. Thank you for the opportunity to be used in this small way to speak to these, your children, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for watching. Make sure you subscribe to this channel so you don't miss a single video or live stream. And share this video with a friend. And don't forget, you can join me live every Sunday. Thanks again for watching.